Hello and welcome to podcast number six for English 264 Online. In this episode, I'll be talking about two writers who form, along with William Wordsworth, what is usually called the Wordsworth Circle by critics. That is Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Dorothy Wordsworth. William and Dorothy Wordsworth were siblings who shared a house during much of William's most productive period, and Coleridge was a close friend and neighbor of Wordsworth, of the Wordsworths, who uh, helped collaborate on many of the poems in uh, lyrical ballads and also was uh, directly involved in shaping Wordsworth's and Coleridge's idea of what poetry ought to be. I'd like to begin with some comments about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was a phenomenal literary figure. He was a poet, a philosopher, a theologian, a social critic, a political theorist, uh, a critical theorist. He excelled at all of these. Um, He was a phenomenal talker who was an idea man who seemed to be an endless fountain of of new ideas and new approaches. Um, John Stuart Mill called him one of the two most influential figures on what 19th century thought turned out to be. And so um, remarkable was his potential that he was also seen by many of his friends and, and acquaintances and contemporaries as a failure who never lived up to his potential. Although I would say that the the current critical view is is to celebrate what he accomplished as opposed to bemoaning what he he left unaccomplished. Um, He was, through much of his life, addicted to opium, uh, which definitely had an effect on his his production and his uh, his mental state, although I would not say that there's a direct connection between his addiction and his, his work, or at least not in the way that a casual reader might assume. Coleridge tended to see everything as being uh, multiplied in categories, and all categories interrelated into a larger unity. So whenever he talks about anything, he's always eventually talking about everything, about how anything is about or is connected to everything. Uh, Set him down anywhere, and his ideas will eventually comprehend the universe, as Thomas Carlyle put it. This characteristic on his part, this expansive quality, makes him hard to read at times, especially in his prose, but also in his poetry. This play of ideas always interweaving, um, always leading off into new tangents, can make it difficult to, to pin him down or uh, figure out how to, how to, what to make of him. I wanted to begin with one of his poems, the, the first in our book, um, in part because he wrote this before much of a direct influence of Wordsworth, uh, and so it indicates that his uh, fascination with nature, his way of looking at nature, is not uh, a direct byproduct of that relationship, but may be more complicated than that. Uh, I guess my tendency as a, as a critic, as a teacher, is always to, to complicate what seems simple, as opposed to simplifying what seems complex. So uh, I apologize for that, if, that's, uh, if that makes things more difficult for you. Uh, but I think it is a more realistic way of looking at things. In the, Aeolian, in the Aeolian Harp, on page 325, he's talking about a, a, what might be an unfamiliar instrument for you. The Aeolian Harp is a wind harp. It's a, um, a stringed instrument that normally you would put uh, in a window. It's, it has a sounding board and a number of strings tuned in a certain frequency, uh, a certain harmony, so that when the wind blows through them, they resonate. And it sounds something like this. This poem is, I think, uh, a nice example uh, of a template for what many of Coleridge's poems are like, his so-called conversation poems, uh, where normally he starts with, in a particular time and place, often with, with a particular other person involved, 
and lets his mind reflect and meditate and expand and eventually come back down to earth uh, and a different place from where he started. The situation here is he's with his wife, Sarah Fricker, Sarah Fricker Coleridge at this point. They're uh, enjoying the, the sunset, the late afternoon or early evening uh, in their cottage in Somersetshire in Clevedon. And, well, he, I'll, I'll read the poem and you can see what he, he notices. My pensive Sarah, thy soft cheek reclined thus on mine arm, most soothing sweet it is to sit beside our cot, uh, cottage. Our cot o'ergrown with white flower jasmine and the broad-leaved myrtle, meet emblems they of innocence and love. Now note here uh, his tendency to, to both be, refer to specific plants, specific flowers, but also to refer to them as emblems, as symbols. Uh, his tendency, like, um, like Blake, is to see through concretes to the infinite beyond them, to go beyond objects to ideas. And so jasmine becomes an emblem of innocence, myrtle becomes an emblem of love. And watch the clouds that late were rich with light, slow saddening round, and mark the star of eve serenely brilliant. Such should wisdom be, shine opposite. Uh, the star of eve is the planet Venus, uh, which is both the evening star and the morning star, depending on what time of day you see it. Uh, but it's the most brilliant object in the night sky other than the moon, and normally appears uh, just before or after sunset. And Note again, he, he moves from the, from the image of the star, from the, or the planet more specifically, um, from seeing it brilliantly serene and moving from the object to the idea. Uh, such should wisdom be. So this is an emblem of what wisdom is or ought to be. He continues, How exquisite the scents snatched from yon beanfield, and the world so hushed, the stilly murmur of the distant sea tells us of silence. Once again, there's a tendency in the Romantics to move from one idea or perception to its opposite. So, for example, in lines written in early spring when Wordsworth is in that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to the mind, or in Blake where you have these um, songs of innocence and of experience, or the marriage of heaven and hell, in a much more subtle sense, Coleridge is doing that here, where the, the, the quiet sound of the sea reminds him how quiet it is. Um, the stilly murmur of the distance he tells us of silence. So hearing sounds far away and distant and quiet makes him think of silence. And that simplest lute placed lengthways in the clasping casement. Hark! How by that a sultry breeze caressed, like some coy maid half yielding to her lover, it pours such sweet upbraidings as must needs tempt to repeat the wrong. And now its strings boldly are swept, the long, sequacious notes over delicious surges sink and rise, such a soft, floating witchery of sound as twilight elfins make when they at eve voyage on gentle gales from fairyland, or melodies round honey-dropping flowers, footless and wild like birds of paradise, nor pause nor perch, hovering on untamed wing. Whenever romantics mention birds, it's worth paying attention to what birds they mention, and to think about uh, why they are mentioning them. Um, for example, here, he makes a reference to a bird of paradise, uh, which, as your footnote points out, are tropical birds famed for colorful plumage, but more, uh, more relevantly, I think, to the point here, according to medieval bestiaries, birds of paradise didn't have any feet, and so they, ne they always hovered or flew, they never actually came down to earth. I think it's significant that Coleridge picks this particular bird uh, because it, an emblem for his ideas, uh, always in the air, never coming down to earth, um, 
what he wishes he could always be in a, in a fit of inspiration. And he moves from uh, the reference to the bird to duplicating the bird's uh, flight in his own thoughts. His ideas take wing in the next section. Oh, the one life within us and abroad, which meets all motion and becomes its soul, a light and sound, a sound like power and light, rhythm in all thought and joyance everywhere. Methinks it should have been impossible not to love all things in a world so filled, where the breeze warbles and the mute still air is music slumbering on her instrument. Note what's going on here, in that everything is interrelated. Uh, he's looking for a unifying principle of all, and it seems to come in, in terms of waves. Let me caution you that um, my major area of study is not in the history of science, and so I'm not positive that he's going along these lines, uh, or, or if it would be anachronistic for him to do so, but he seems to be pointing out that light moves in waves, sound moves in waves, uh, a light and sound, a sound like power and light, rhythm in all thought, and joyance everywhere. Like Wordsworth, who in lines written in early spring was convinced, um, no matter what he, he could do about it, that nature was happy, he seems to see in this unity, in this rhythm, in this um, repetition of an interconnectedness, joy in everything. And he, he see, seems to see this Aeolian harp as an emblem for the, the movement, the rhythm, the sound, the connectedness, the, the breeze and the, and the music and all, uh, all the world around him. So this Aeolian harp becomes the center of the universe for him, connected to and resembling, uh, reflecting everything else. And he, he continues, And thus, my love, as on the midway slope of yonder hill I stretch my limbs at noon, whilst through my half-closed eyes I behold the sunbeams dance like diamonds on the main, and tranquil muse upon tranquility. Full many a thought uncalled and undetained, and many idle, and many idle flitting fantasies traverse my indolent and passive brain, as wild and various as the random gales that swell and flutter on this subject loot. Note, here he seems to be turning into that Aeolian harp himself. Uh, he is that passive object receiving the intellectual breeze from, uh, from he, does, he knows not where, uh, from the one life that flows through everything, which gives him thoughts um, he had not had before, thoughts he, he is not con in control of. He is the recipient of new combinations of ideas which had not existed before. And Recognizing this process in himself, he then projects it to the world around him. And what if all of animated nature be but organic harps, diversely framed, that tremble into thought as o'er them sweeps plastic and vast one intellectual breeze, at once the soul of each and God of all? If Blake were a more conservative or orthodox uh, theologian or, or Christian, um, which he was not at this point in his life, he might have called this the Holy Spirit, uh, this idea of the soul of each and God of all that flows through and connects everyone, this intellectual breeze that, that unites and inspires. Uh, the word inspire means to breathe through or to blow through. But Coleridge was, uh, at this point, uh, or had at one point in his life, contemplated joining the church, but the Unitarian Church, not a Trinitarian Church. So the Holy Spirit would not have been part of his concept of how God worked. Now, this uh, at this fairly exalted point in his thoughts, um, he starts to get pulled back down to earth. Unlike the bird of paradise, he cannot hover forever, and at this point Sarah, his wife, gives him the look. 
But thy more serious eye a mild reproof darts, O beloved woman, nor such thoughts, dim and unhallowed, dost thou not reject, and biddest me walk humbly with my God, meek daughter in the family of Christ. Well hast thou said, and holily dispraised these shapings of the unregenerate mind, bubbles that glitter as they rise and break on vain philosophy's eye-babbling spring. For never guiltless may I speak of him, the incomprehensible, save when with awe I praise him, and with faith that inly feels, who with his saving mercies healed me, a sinful and most miserable man, wildered and dark, and gave me to possess peace and this cot and thee, heart-honored maid. What's significant, I think, in, in the ending of the poem is that he is brought back down to earth. Um, you, you could perhaps um, take this poem as a, a veiled commentary on, on his marriage, and although he tends to put the most positive spin on it, he needs her to ground him. You may detect a certain degree of resentment about that as well. Also, his tendency to see himself in a somewhat negative sense, as a miserable man, as a one who needs healing. He was already, by this point, suffering from some of the complications of addiction to opium, uh, which he took for medical conditions. Uh, and until 1890, there was no pain medicine available except for opium. Uh, aspirin wasn't invented until the 1890s. And so um, the advantage, uh, I, I mean, opium, which is uh, derived from opium poppies, does numb the pain, but it's also hideously addictive and leads to withdrawal when you try to, to stop taking it. But it was widely taken for headaches, stomach aches, um, toothaches. It was not generally taken as a recreational drug, as, as you might assume, but uh, for medical purposes, but people definitely got addicted to it. Uh, I guess you could see it as the Oxycontin of its day. Um, and Coleridge definitely was addicted to it. The main result was not I would say poems like the Remedy Ancient Mariner and the, these trippy imagination poems as much as a, a general sense of, of melancholy or despair uh, and a lot of projects left unfinished. In the first lyrical ballads, for instance, in the first volume, about 75% of the poems were by Wordsworth and only a quarter by Coleridge. Uh, when the second edition of lyrical ballads came out, all of the second volume was written by Wordsworth exclusively with no other additional poems by Coleridge. Um, Wordsworth was much more productive than, than Coleridge tended to be. Uh, Coleridge tended, tended to take on huge projects which he never finished. And I think a lot of that uh, and his own difficulty in, in relationships came from, from the addiction and results from that. I also wanted to say a few words about Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which um, of the poems he wrote during his lifetime probably were the ones which most established his reputation as one of the, the great poets of his time. Uh, it was the opening poem in the first Lyrical Ballads volume. It was the poem that readers would first encounter. When it was originally published in 1798, um, it had a different epigraph. It did not have the Latin epigraph by uh, Thomas Burnett, and it also didn't have the marginal gloss that you have in the version in our anthology. That was not added until um, 19 years later, after the original publication. The purpose of the poem is, to some extent, to, to be a narrative, to be one of the a ballads. It tells a story. And uh, it is supposed to, in some, to some extent, imitate a medieval ballad, um, a medieval story, in, that, in which it gives it a certain leeway in terms of um, talking about the supernatural, talking about um, the fantastic events of the, the spirit of the Antarctica and 
of um, life and death personified. And this almost mystical power the ancient mariner has to, as he wanders from country to country, to speak the tongue of whatever, lang whatever language is there that, in that particular place, to find the person who must hear his story and to compel him to listen, as he does the wedding guest here. As you're reading this story, uh, as you're reading this poem, you are, I hope, to some extent also fascinated, also compelled, like the wedding guest, to find out what happens. Uh, what is the mariner's story? How did he get to be this way? What did he do? Um, what's the moral of the story? All of these are issues which, which should come up, I hope, and which might be good for discussion in your, in your blog. So I wanted to look in the time, short time that I have on this podcast, particularly at the ending of the poem. This is after all the mariner's adventures, after he returns to his homeland. Um, he, the, the hermit gives him absolution um, and asks him, um, what manner of man art thou? And the ancient mariner replies, or, or retells, Forthwith this frame of mine was wrenched with a woeful agony, which forced me to begin my tale, and then it left me free. Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns. Until my ghastly tale is told, this heart within me burns. I pass like night from land to land. I have strange power of speech. That moment that his face I see, I know the man that must hear me. To him my tale I teach. There are a number of romantic poems and, and gothic stories which feature the wanderer who has had some experience which makes him different from normal people and who comes back to report what he has seen. To some extent, the mariner is, is that figure and perhaps the, perhaps the best example of that figure. At the end of the poem, he gives this moral to the wedding guest. The mariner's closing words to the wedding guest are, Farewell, farewell, but this I tell to thee, thou wedding guest. He prayeth well, who loveth well, both man and bird and beast. He prayeth best, who loveth best, all things, both great and small. For the dear God, who loveth us, he made and loveth all. And the mariner disappears. The wedding guest staggers off, stunned. Uh, a sadder and a wiser man, he rose the morrow morn, we are told. Now, one might want, I mean, it's certainly a nice moral, um, be kind to animals is you know, a good British moral. Uh, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals began in England. Um, this idea of loving all of God's creation and, and nature certainly fits in with the romantic uh, ideals. Uh, the passage earlier in the poem where the wedding, where the ancient mariner, who at that time could not pray, blesses the sea, the sea snakes unawares, uh, sees the beauty in nature, even in these slimy sea snakes on the, on the scum on the ocean, um, and the albatross drops from his neck and he's able to pray. So you know, it, it could, seem, could conceivably work as the moral. But there's a, uh, uh, a supplement to our reading on 341, where um, Anna Letitia Barbeau, another writer and poet of the time, tells Coleridge, that she admired the ancient mariner very much, but that there were two faults in it. It was improbable and had no moral. And Coleridge relates, As for the probability, I own that there, that might omit some question, but as to the want of a moral, I told her that in my own judgment the poem had too much, and that the only or chief fault, if I might say so, was the obtrusion of the moral sentiment so openly on the reader as a principle or cause of action in a work of such pure imagination. This might be a good topic for, for discussion uh, in your blogs. Does this poem have not enough moral or, or too much? Um, is it you know, a, a wandering story of, of high adventure with no greater purpose? Or is the moral that's given at the end, love God and animals, 
is, is that insufficient for this imaginative tale? Is that perhaps they're not to uh, sum up the story, like one of Aesop's fables, here's the moral, but to prompt the reader to look at it again and to find his own moral in it? One final supplement um, in your discussion of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner that you might consider also is what uh, Coleridge says about it in the Biographia Literaria. On page 353, he's talking about his and Wordsworth's plans in writing lyrical ballads, what each of them designed to do, and he, he says, The thought suggested itself, to which of us I do not recollect, that a series of poems might be composed of two sorts. In the one, the incidents and agents were to be, in part at least, supernatural, and the excellence aimed at was to consist in the interesting of the affections by the dramatic truth of such emotions as would naturally accompany such situations, supposing them real. And real in this sense, they have been to every human being who, from whatever source of delusion, has at any time believed himself under supernatural agency. For the second class, subjects were to be chosen from ordinary life. The characters and incidents were to be such as will be found in every village in its vicinity where there is a meditative and feeling mind to seek after them, or to notice them when they present themselves. This latter, um, scenes from, everyday, from ordinary life, is primarily what Wordsworth did in poems like Simon Lee, where you take an ordinary person, perhaps an a excessively ordinary person in an ordinary event, and leave it up to prompt the reader to make a story of it by thinking about it, by applying his powers of empathy and, and imagination to it. Coleridge, especially in The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, is doing the former, is telling a supernatural story, but telling it uh, by emphasizing the psychological truth of it. Uh, what would it be like to be in the situation? How would somebody respond to, to being in the situation, uh, alone on a ship at sea, surrounded by the bodies of your crewmates, now inhabited by spirits? What would you do? And to try to present that in such a way that would seem real, uh, not from the reality of the, the situation, but from the reality of the reaction. Uh, to be able to maintain, as he says in the next paragraph, the reader's willing suspension of disbelief for the moment, which constitutes poetic faith. To, so not to violate the reader's willing suspension of disbelief. The reader has to, to suspend disbelief on certain parts, but once that given ha has been established, that such things can occur, then to maintain the reader's um, sense of reality and truth and human nature from that. And again, you might try to uh, discuss that in your, in your writings. Uh, to what extent Coleridge is able to establish that in something like um, The Remedy Ancient Mariner. As far as Dorothy Wordsworth is concerned, uh, I might point your attention specifically to her journal entries. She's a, a, a very interesting case in that she demonstrates um, some of the differences between male and female poets, uh, male and female roles for, gender roles for male and female poets and how they differed. She never intended to to write for publication. She never intended to be read. She didn't want to be famous. Only a couple of her poems were published during her lifetime, and they were published under the name by a sister in one of Wordsworth's volumes. She wrote the journal not for fame and fortune, but to make William happy, uh, to record the events of their day. But nevertheless, her journals and her poems reveal a remarkable mind, uh, one very similar to, to William's in many ways. She has a good poetic eye. She notes particulars and specifics. Uh, she notes a lot of the same events and objects and people that Wordsworth, that William, her brother, tends to write about. 
for example, in nature, she has very particular attention to the names and appearance of plants and very particular attention to the types of people, especially an eye for the most vulnerable. You might notice the number of beggars who, who come through these, um, these mountains, come through these roads, the type of chance encounters that she has. It's only within the last 20 or 30 years or so that Dorothy Wordsworth has become a figure of interest in her own right, as opposed to merely of interest because she was part of William's household because she was his sister and, and had some record that would shed light on his work. Uh, I would say in large part because of feminist critics, she has been seen as, a, as an individual and writer in her own right. Uh, one particularly interesting comparison you might make if you're interested along these lines is to compare her entry uh, that, that our editor marks as a field of daffodils on page 296 and 297 in our book and com uh, which tells of walking with William, of encountering a, a large swath of daffodils growing on the side of a lake, uh, her, her language describing it, her, her uh, thoughts about it, um, and compare that with William's poem that he wrote two years later about that particular incident. It was not part of the assigned reading in our book, um, but it's a very short poem and you might wish to, to read it. On page 282, the poem, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, which takes that incident and converts it into a poem about uh, about encountering the daffodils and the the, the effect of the, that scene. Um, you might note particular what's similar in these two, the, the metaphors of dancing, the images of joy in the daffodils, and also what's different. He's wandering lonely, presumably alone. And the last stanza in William's poem, which reflects on what that scene has brought to him, what, what memory has made of that that particular chance encounter with the daffodils, that chance encounter with beauty and nature, and how it uh, lifts him up even when he's sad and, and away from nature. Again, that's almost um, typically Wordsworthian in the sense of spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions recollected in tranquility. It's also a good example of seeing how Wordsworth tends to base his poems on life, but they're not identical to his life. Uh, he transforms life for the purposes of art, for the purposes of, of making a point. And so that would be a good uh, line of discussion for you as well. In our next podcast, uh, we'll turn to the second generation of romantics and look specifically at Byron and Shelley. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye.